Don't look now, but Donald Trump is in shockingly decent shape to actually prevail in the 2024 presidential election. As we look now at the Real Clear Politics polling average, Joe Biden is currently negative 16 points in the average job approval rating. His average approval rating is hovering right around 40%. Typically, historically speaking, when you have a president who is running for a re-election year, that incumbent president, if you are polling at 50% or higher, when it comes to your job approval rating, then you are typically in good shape when it comes to your re-election. Donald Trump back in 2020 was always polling somewhere in the 43 to 45% range, usually around 44 to 45%, which is what made it a close call because Trump historically underperforms his job approval rating when it comes to both the national popular vote and the electoral college vote as well. So suffice to say, Joe Biden polling at 40% job approval rating on average is not particularly good. When you start breaking it down issue by issue, it gets even more devastating. Joe Biden's job approval rating when it comes to the issue of immigration, the number one issue facing the United States of America right now, negative 31% underwater when it comes to the issue of immigration. Absolutely insane. Negative 25 points underwater, roughly speaking, when it comes to the issue of inflation. He's not doing a heck of a lot better when it comes to the economy in general. You ask Americans whether the country is heading in the right or wrong direction, according to Real Clear Politics. Polling average, once again, negative 41 points. My goodness, Americans, by a 41-point margin, roughly speaking, tell pollsters that they think America is headed in the wrong track. Some eye-popping numbers in here, a poll from NBC News just a couple weeks ago, negative 51. Only 22% of Americans, according to that NBC News poll, say we're heading in the right direction. 73% say we're heading in, in the wrong track. Astonishing stuff. And you add all that together, and you get, once again, to the Real Clear Politics polling average for the 2024 general election for Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Right now, according to the polling average, Donald Trump is actually up by 1.2 points. It's close, certainly. There are a couple of, of good polls that stand out. An NBC News poll from a couple weeks ago had Trump up by five. A CNN poll from a similar time frame had him up by four. But overall, he is up. And overall, he has been leading Joe Biden now in the polling average for a little while now. This is not something that just happened overnight over the past week or so. We can now safely say that this is a trend. And when you start getting into the polling crosstabs, you start to see why this is a trend. If you look at Hispanic votes nationwide, it's going to vary poll to poll. The Hispanic vote nationwide right now is looking essentially like a toss up. I mean, it's within the margin of error. I mean, it is basically a 50-50 proposition. You have it going two to three, four or five points at the absolute most one direction or the other there. That is remarkable. That is absolutely remarkable. And it's it's doubly remarkable, really, when you consider the fact that for so many years, the elite chattering commentators from both sides of the aisle, from all political parties, have just been bellowing from the rafters that the only way you're ever going to make inroads with the Hispanic vote, Republicans, you're only going to do this if you start supporting mass immigration, both legal and illegal, if you start promoting pro-amnesty measures, if you, if you start talking about legalizing illegals, giving them work permits, giving them, God forbid, a path to citizenship. And 
that just could not have been more wrong. I mean, going back to the infamous so-called autopsy that the failed former RNC chairman Reince Priebus commissioned after Mitt Romney's blowout loss to Barack Obama in 2012, that infamous RNC autopsy called for Republicans to so-called moderate when it came to social and cultural issues, really above all on the immigration issue, or else that autopsy feared Republicans would perhaps never win a presidential election again. As we all know, that proved to be the most catastrophically incorrect autopsy in the history of autopsies. Trump won only four years later in 2016 on the backing of his strident stances, rhetoric, rallying cries on the immigration issue above all. And now here we are eight years after the first MAGA election of 2016. And once again, wow, I mean, Hispanics are 50-50. Are the rhetoric from the Republican side of the aisle and the policies for that matter certainly have not gotten any more liberal. In fact, the recent measure that was just blasted out of the U.S. Senate, the so-called border bill, which we discussed on a previous episode of The Josh Hammer Show, but the so-called border bill would have 60 billion plus for Ukraine. It wasn't much of a border bill, but even focusing on the actual measures that pertain to immigration and the border itself, the bill was actually less catastrophically liberal than many similar so-called grand compromises when it comes to the issue of immigration. I mean, going back to the to the Gang of Eight negotiations back in 2013, where you had Marco Rubio, who was put forward as the conservative voice for amnesty for illegal aliens. Back then, what they were proposing when it, when, it, when it comes to legalizing illegals, work permits for illegals, path to citizenship for some illegals, that stuff back then was so much worse, so much more leftist, so much more sovereignty undermining than what was recently rejected, properly rejected, but what was recently rejected by the U.S. Senate, which really just dealt with the issuing of work permits for those who come to the border and erroneously, typically, fraudulently, typically, say that they are there for purposes of asylum as asylees. Again, that bill was properly rejected, but I'm just making a point that Right now, the locus of the immigration debate has shifted very, very far to the right. That is one thing that we can definitively say has been an excellent, an excellent downstream effect of the era of Donald Trump. Going back to our polling crosstabs, it's really not just Hispanics that have markedly shifted. You have this 50-50 within the margin of error split when it comes to Hispanics. Do you you know what other demographic group right now is 50-50 within the margin of error, roughly speaking? It's shocking. It's the 18 to 35-year-old demographic. Absolutely nuts. Truly nuts. I, I never, ever, ever would have thought that the 18 to 35 demographic, when, especially when it comes to, to Donald Trump, who, you know, let's be real, is kind of a boomer's boomer. I, I, I really would never have thought that that demographic could actually be split. But, you know, sure enough, when you're going up against the doddering dolt from Delaware, the senile in chief, Joe Biden whose own Merrick Garland appointed special counsel, Robert Hur, just last week told us is so senile that he literally cannot remember the rough date that his own son, Bo, tragically died. He literally cannot remember whether he is still vice president of the United States, the date that he started, the date that he finished his vice presidential duty. The man is just a walking poop show in, in real time. And, I, you know, I say that tongue in cheek because who knows what kind of depends or adult diapers Joe Biden is actually wearing on any given evening. I would not want to be the one responsible for, for changing, though, certainly, if, they, if, if, if that is the unfortunate task of some godforsaken White House aide, probably some sort of college intern from some woke hippie-dippie college or something like that there. But... 
yeah, when you're talking here about going up against Joe Biden, then I guess that's the only way that that 18 to 35 demographic vote could ever be 50-50 against someone like Donald Trump. So long story short, the polling does support, really, when you get into the crosstabs, it makes sense that Trump and Joe Biden are polling this evenly. Having said that, there are some glaring, glaring questions still when it comes to the 2024 presidential election. Above all, above all, there is the question of the lawfare, the question of all of the litigation. You see many, many polls right now that show the pollsters who are asking questions, will you still vote for Donald Trump, whether what, if he is indicted or if he is actually convicted? You know, he's been indicted four times now. That ship has sailed. According to those polls, people say that they are extraordinarily less likely to vote for Donald Trump if he is actually convicted of a crime. And uh, the numbers change exactly on a poll-to-poll basis, but it's, it's fairly consistent over, over a period of time there. Now, that raises the obvious question, if this really is the black swan event, a, a, a conviction in one of these actual criminal cases, then it stands to reason that we should talk a little bit about where Trump stands in these actual cases. So before going into the criminal prosecution cases, it's worth pointing out at the outset that Donald Trump also has some other non-criminal cases going on here. So he was actually just at the Supreme Court last week in the case called Trump versus Anderson. This is the appeal from the Supreme Court of Colorado who had this outrageous, ludicrous ruling that Section 3, the so-called insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment, they held in a divided opinion there out in Denver, Colorado, that Trump was banned from the ballot because he was a, quote, officer of the United States under the meaning of the term, and that January 6, 2021 amounted to a, quote, insurrection under the original meaning of that term, as was meant in 1868, the year the 14th Amendment was ratified. Absolutely insane. The justices were having none of this whatsoever at oral argument last Thursday. Go ahead and listen to that oral argument if you have not already done so, if you're a bit of a legal nerd like myself, Jonathan Mitchell was the exceedingly, exceedingly talented attorney representing Donald Trump there in both his brief filing and at oral argument at the Supreme Court. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jonathan in a personal capacity for over a decade now. Genuinely one of the brightest, most underappreciated legal minds in the United States of America. God willing, he will be a United States Solicitor General one day or for a really, really lucky a federal appeals judge, or, you know, if we really hit a home run, maybe a U.S. Supreme Court justice, a, a boy can certainly dream. The justices were having none of it. You had Katanji Brown Jackson and Elena Kagan who were having none of this argument. So the only question there is whether it's going to be a 9-0 unanimous or an 8-1 to reversal of the Colorado Supreme Court. The question with 8-1 to is whether you have Sonia Sotomayor who wants to kind of go with her resistance street cred and really just go there. I, I actually predict at this point it's probably going to be 9-0 unanimous. You have other non-criminal litigation with Trump as well. You have imminently forthcoming a verdict when it comes to the civil fraud case. It's it's It seems like, it sounds like, it, it talks like it sounds like a criminal case. It's not, it's not actually a criminal case. This would be the civil fraud trial being brought by the Attorney General of New York State, Tish James, looking into alleged fraud of the Trump organization. It, it, it's an absolutely harrowing and chilling fishing expedition of a case. The basic allegations here is that the Trump organization has systemically undervalued their properties and they've kept the books in a slightly different fashion than the Attorney General of New York and all of her grandeur and glory and knowledge. 
than she would have preferred to have had. And therefore, as a result of that, that they have been able to secure bank loans at slightly favorable rates or more favorable than Tish James would idiosyncratically prefer. And all this has to do with the appraisals of the property. It's a, it's a total poop show of a case. The effects of this, if you are a budding entrepreneur in the Empire State, are genuinely bone chilling. I mean, think about the fact that, I, I mean, who wants to just, like invest capital? In the case, who wants to actually invest capital from either a venture capital or private equity, growth equity perspective, or if you're an entrepreneur, actually do the nitty gritty, the actual hard work of recruiting talent and building infrastructure? Who who in the world would want to do something like that when you know that the apparatus of the state government could come breathing down your neck and suing you for upwards of $400 million or $370 million, as the case may be in this Tish James case, because they don't like the way you value your property. It's absolutely insane stuff there. It's an outrageous case, but we are expecting a ruling there from Justice Arthur and Goron by Friday. Trump obviously will have his shot at appeal there as well. It's not really a question as to, what, as to how the anti-Trump judge is going to rule in this case. It's really just a question as to what the actual damages number there is going to be. So that does bring us to the four criminal prosecutions currently facing the former and perhaps future president of the United States, Donald Trump. And we will start in New York right there. So it looks like right now that the New York state prosecution brought by the Soros prosecutor there in Manhattan of New York County, New York. That would be Alvin Bragg. It looks like his criminal prosecution is going to be the first out of the gate. If you forget, because it's been a while, this is the first one to drop last spring, around late March of 2023. And Alvin Bragg has this indictment against Donald Trump for the so-called hush money payments involving Michael Cohen and the one and only Stormy Daniels around the time of the 2016 presidential election. It's an absolutely farcical and cartoonish use of the prosecutorial apparatus. At the time, liberal media, the liberal commentary on cable news, they, they couldn't even get anyone to defend this thing on the air. The New York Times editorial board was even like, eh, you know, like, eh, you know, not necessarily the strongest case from Alvin Bragg, but you know, makes a lot of sense when you when you consider the fact that Alvin Bragg, much like Tish James, by the way, ran on an explicitly anti-Trump, get Trump platform. Really insane that that you're even allowed to do that in in America. It's borderline unconstitutional. Frankly, we literally have a constitutional provision that you are not allowed to name individuals when it comes to bills, bills of attainder. But I guess they did it in their campaigns anyway there. So Alan Bragg is almost surely going to get that one out of the gate first. It also is the most likely to have a guilty verdict. It is the most likely to actually reach the finish line and actually land in, in a guilty verdict. Trump has limited options to, to stall that one out. He has more options when it comes to the other lawsuits that we're going to talk about in, in just a minute here. He has more limited options. When it comes to playing stall ball there in the, in New York City, so if you're going to get a guilty verdict, it will be the one in New York. It's it's possible you get two. It's possible. I, I I'm not convinced of that, but it's possible. But if you're going to bet on one, you're going to bet on the Alvin Bragg one. Here's the thing: the legal argument here is so farcical, it is so outrageous that despite the polling that we said earlier, where a lot of Americans say that, oh no no no, I simply will never vote for him if he's convicted of a crime. When you actually explain what's going on here. When, when you actually explain the insane use of the relevant underlying bookkeeping statutes 
to suss out conduct from seven and a half, eight years ago, notwithstanding blatant violations of the statute of limitations and the crazy characters involved here, Stormy Daniels, the porn star, for God's sake. When you start to explain this to him, I mean, this really does play right into Donald Trump's narrative that this is a witch hunt, which it is, which it absolutely unequivocally is. When it comes to Alvin Bragg and Tish James, perhaps above all else there, so I think it's going to really play into Donald Trump's hand, actually, uh, somewhat ironically, perhaps counterintuitively, if he's able to get that guilty verdict there in the state of New York when it comes to Alvin Breck. But looking at some of the other criminal prosecutions on the docket here, Trump, Trump's looking quite a bit lucky, actually, when it comes to the current state of the other three. So the other non-federal prosecution is down in Fulton County, Georgia. This is the sprawling racketeering RICO case brought by the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, Fonnie Willis, who is having a hearing tomorrow. There is an evidentiary hearing tomorrow in Fulton County, Georgia, in front of the judge there, Judge Scott McAfee, who is going to be looking into the not just allegations, but actual admissions and, and confirmations that Fonnie Willis is romantically involved, is literally romantically involved with the special prosecutor that she tapped to prosecute, that she tapped to prosecute Donald Trump and some of his other co-defendants there in Georgia, a man by the name of Nathan Wade. Fonnie Willis actually admitted towards the end of last week in a formal court filing that she has had an illicit romantic relationship with Nathan Wade. There are questions as to whether she has been lying about the exact timeline there, for that relationship. We will learn more at this evidentiary hearing on Thursday. There are other allegations that Fonnie Willis has been directly complicit with federal authorities when it comes to trying to time these prosecutions together. Uh, Congressman Jason Smith, the chairman of the House Ways and, Ways and Means Committee from Missouri, he was out last week. He was talking about how he had evidence from the White House visitors log that Fonnie Wills has been in and out of the White House counsel's office over the past year and a half, two years or so there. And wow, I mean, like it, it, this whole thing in Georgia is just sinking. And we actually have Trump's co-defendant there. Michael Roman is his name. We have him to thank for a lot of this because without Michael Roman, a lot of this would not have come to light, especially when it comes to Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade and their little illicit rendezvous over the years. You also now have multiple, multiple subpoena investigations, even outside of the Judge McAfee-provided evidentiary hearing on Thursday. You have a, a Georgia State Senate special committee that has subpoena power that's looking into the possible violation, misallocation, misuse of taxpayer funding when it comes to Fonnie Willis. And then also, Congressman Jim Jordan, the MAGA stalwart from the state of Ohio, he also has issued a subpoena for Fonnie Willis to appear before his committee to testify when it comes to his previously announced investigation to cover much of the same territory, the alleged misallocation of of taxpayer funding there. So this, this situation in Georgia is really turning into a bit of a poop show. It's unclear right now when that trial is even going to start. Bear in mind that the that the trial start date for Georgia, this is this is actually always going to be a, a, a later one on the calendar, even as of like a month or so ago, that one wasn't proposed to start until August 5th. Well, what happens if they find that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade are actually unfit 
to bring this prosecution, not to find an alternative venue for that. Well, where's it going to go? Is it going to go out of Fulton County? Once you start getting out of Atlanta, Georgia, and you're in Georgia, Georgia, you're going to have some some jury pools. You're going to have some locations, some redder jurisdictions that are a lot more favorable, a lot more favorable to Donald Trump. And for that reason alone, Trump's starting to look a heck of a lot better there. So Trump is looking like a very lucky man for the time being when it comes to Georgia. Say what you will. When it comes to Donald Trump and everyone has their own opinions on the guy, I personally preferred Ron DeSantis in, in the primary for sure. But say, say what you will about the guy, man. I mean, his enemies just beclown themselves time and time again. Donald Trump is truly blessed to have the worst enemies in the world. Stormy freaking Daniels in New York City. And now this outrageous, cringy love affair between Fonnie Wills and Nathan Wade there in Fulton County, Georgia. Absolutely crazy stuff. He's looking real, real lucky in Georgia. Now, speaking of ways to possibly get lucky, we turn to the two federal prosecutions brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Jack Smith has been appointed by the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland. He has issued these two federal indictments in Florida and in Washington, D.C., the indictment in my state, the state of Florida, deals with Trump's retention of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Now, this is an interesting one because for a lot of reasons, I thought and continue to think that Donald Trump was on fairly strong ground here, especially, especially in the aftermath of the fact that Robert Hur, in his own special counsel report last week when it comes to Joe Biden's similar deed, his similar mishandling of classified information, Robert Hur said that even were it not for the Department of Justice policy against indicting sitting presidents, he still, still would not recommend bringing charges against Joe Biden. I th- given that statement, think about how self-owning the Biden regime were to look if we ultimately do get guilty verdicts against Donald Trump when it comes to very, very similar action with classified documents. It's actually much better for Trump. It's actually much more justifiable for Trump than it is for Biden. Donald Trump, unlike Joe Biden back when he was mishandling classified documents, Donald Trump was the commander in chief of the United States. Therefore, he had the plenary commander in chief power, the plenary executive power. There is a decent Article II constitutional argument that he has the inherent power to make classification decisions, whether he makes it within the statutory or regulation ordinances and regulations and regime that is outlined or not. So he had a much, much stronger argument than Joe Biden did for doing virtually the same conduct when it comes to taking classified documents and classified information out of where they should have been. Now, another thing that's working in, in Trump's favor in in Florida is that the the jury pool, the jury pool for this jurisdiction, which is the this is where Judge Aileen Cannon a Trump nominee, this is where she is presiding over the trial there. The jurisdiction is going to have a a lot of red voters and a lot of blue voters. This is not a deep, deep blue part of the state of Florida. You're going to have some blue areas for sure that are going to be comprising the broader jury pool that's possible for this case. You're going to have some, you're going to have some red areas as well. So for a lot of reasons there, I, I am not convinced at all that this is going to be a slam dunk case for Jack Smith. Now, the most damning thing against Trump when it comes to the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case is that according to Jack Smith's indictment, and again, this is just one side, it's just one side, it is the prosecutor's view of the case, but according to the facts that they allege when they unveiled this indictment last June, towards the beginning of last summer, 
They did say that Donald Trump straight up ignored a grand jury subpoena. Now, if true, if that is actually true, then that that is a very big deal. There's no way to get around that. That that is illegal, period, full stop, end of story. You can't do that. You can't ignore a grand jury subpoena. But other than that, a lot of the substantive actions when it comes to the illicit handling of classified documents, a lot of it does seem to probably be covered under a statute known as the Presidential Records Act. Certainly, certainly the idea of using the Espionage Act, my God's sake, this cobwebbed law going back from the World War I era that has always been a, a bugaboo, that has always been a thorn in the side of civil libertarians. Whipping out the Espionage Act to prosecute a foreign president is absolutely ludicrous, absolutely bad crap insane. I think just due to that and the nature of, of the jury pool there, I think Trump's honestly looking in pretty good shape there in the state of Florida. So that leaves us with Washington, D.C., which is the prized. This is the prized of the four prosecution by the Biden regime. It is the one that the Biden regime, that the, that the Democrat media complex, as Andrew Breitbart famously called it. This, this is the case, the case in Washington, D.C., that they are most excited about. This is the federal version roughly of what Fonnie Willis in Georgia is bringing. It is the federal version when it comes to the allegation that Trump orchestrated a sprawling national criminal conspiracy in the aftermath of the 2020 election to quote unquote overturn the election to use the the rhetoric and the narrative of the Biden administration and regime media and things like that there. And that is what Jack Smith is trying to do. The, the current state of the litigation there is that Trump argued in court that Jack Smith can't bring this case, period, full stop, end of story, because he's actually entitled to immunity. Because the fact that he was the president of the United States at the time that, the, that he took these actions that they are prosecuting for means that he can't be prosecuted for it. And I think that Trump has a decently strong argument here. Now, it is well-established DOJ policy, as we just said, that a sitting president cannot be indicted for actions he took as president of the United States. So the only question then is whether you can be indicted after, after your term ends as the president for actions that you took. In other words, does the nature of the transition of power therefore make you subject to prosecution for acts that you took when you were vested with the executive power of which Article 2 of the Constitution speaks and so forth? From an ex-ante forward-looking incentives-based perspective, the potential ramifications of subjecting President of the United States to criminal prosecution for actions that they took as president is insane. Th think of where this ends. You know, Anwar Alawaki was a United States citizen. He was also a very bad man. He was directly linked to Al-Qaeda. And Barack Obama, in what I thought was one of the highlights of the otherwise quite, quite poor, to put it mildly, Barack Obama presidency, one, one of the highlights was the assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki via Hellfire missile in Yemen, in the Arabian Peninsula, over a decade ago, around 2011 or so. That really was, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I mean, in a, in a presidency with Obamacare and the Iran deal, whatever, you didn't have a whole lot of highlights. I mean, Sonia Sotomayor, are you freaking kidding me? Now, the assassination of Anwar al-Awlaki was, was one of the highlights there. But think about that. You know, if you're a liberal, if, if, you're, if you are a Barack Obama defender or apologist, do you really think Barack Obama should be subject to criminal prosecution in January 2016 from the United States Department of Justice, from Trump's attorneys general? 
for doing what he did to all are you kidding me based on the decision he made in the situation room with his advisors based on weighing all sorts of variables about national security and this it's insane it's insane nonetheless in a per curiam so a unanimously signed three judge panel opinion of the u.s court of appeals for the dc circuit last week they said that trump does not have immunity and therefore the jack smith's prosecution can proceed on monday evening trump requested an emergency stay of that decision from the dc circuit we will see what the supreme court does with it they can issue a stay which would then allow trump to try to get the full dc circuit court of appeals in what is known as an en banc seating to that is where the full court all 11 members sit that in my judgment is what he would probably do if the supreme court issues a simple stay or alternatively the supreme court could issue a stay and then actually command the parties to file formal writs of petition for cert to actually hear the case on the substantive constitutional merits the actual article 2 constitutional question as to whether trump's claim of presidential immunity would preclude this entire prosecution jumping out the legal weeds there for a second the effect of all of this is that this slows down the clock you know, if you're Donald Trump's lawyers right now, and he has some excellent lawyers, I mentioned Jonathan Mitchell, who's representing him there in the Colorado case. He has another excellent lawyer by the name of John Sauer, the former Missouri Solicitor General, representing him there in the D.C. Circuit. You know, he has some of these idiotic lawyers who you see on TV, Alina Habba, people like that. You know, I'm, ha I'm happy to report that some of Donald Trump's lawyers are actually real lawyers. Not all of them are just morons that you see play as lawyers on your television set. So if you're one of Trump's lawyers, the goal here, especially in the D.C. circuit, is really just to run out the clock. And they, they might be able to do that. It's possible that, that they're able to do that. It was just a week and a half, two weeks ago or so, that Judge Tanya Chuckin, the trial court judge who's going to preside on this case when it finally gets a trial, she actually removed the trial start date of Donald Trump there in D.C. from her docket because we were waiting on the three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit to issue, issue their ruling on immunity. And Judge Chuckin knows that this is going to get heard from either the en banc D.C. Circuit Court and or the United States Supreme Court. So a lot, lot has to happen there. It's going to be a close call. I think it's going to be a genuinely close call as to whether we ultimately get far enough in the trial, assuming that is, of course, that the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't ultimately hold that Trump has presidential immunity and that this prosecution cannot proceed. I, I think it is a likely correct argument when it comes to presidential immunity, but I do not predict a majority of the court will go for it. Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, maybe Brett Kavanaugh, maybe Neil Gorsuch. I mean, probably, honestly, just Thomas and Alito, if I had to guess. Just a total raw guess there. But even assuming that, even assuming that they don't rule on behalf of presidential immunity, it's going to be a really close call as to whether this trial ultimately gets going in time there's going to be a lot of evidentiary hearings here there's going to be a lot of motions back and forth these things take time these things absolutely take time now jack smith as andy trump as special counsel's got jack smith is going to be breathing down the neck of merrick garland to his superior in the united states department of justice to get this thing across the finish line to get merrick garland and get the judge to get this thing across the finish line before november because they're seeing the same polls that i'm seeing when it comes to the number of Americans who tell pollsters that they will not vote for Donald Trump if he's convicted of a crime. The catch, of course, is that Jack Smith's word when it comes to something like that means absolutely nothing. So it's going to be a close call there. If Trump is actually going to be harmed by any of these four cases when it comes to the 2024 presidential election, that's the case. 
That is the case. It is the Washington, D.C. case. Can Trump's lawyers slow down the clock enough? It's going to be close. Of course, you could alternatively rely on the jury pool coming up strong, but you probably don't want to be there when it comes to a federal trial involving Donald Trump in Washington, D.C., for goodness sake. So lots and lots of questions when it comes to the legal calendar. We're going to be following it all election season long here on The Josh Hammer Show. We are just getting started. Make sure to subscribe if you are not already doing so to the show. Leave us that five-star review. Let us know how we are doing. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode of The Josh Hammer Show. We look forward to being with you for the rest of this 2024 presidential election season.